attention, please. This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Yeah. Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and this show is all about comics, movies, and TV shows. Now, most of this year is supposed to be spent sorting through a bunch of different miniseries and whatnot, and well, I guess just take it from the beginning. For those of you who don't know, my show follows an eight-episode structure. I spend six episodes talking about whatever. Then I spend the seventh episode with Chris Honeywell talking about one of the DC Paradox Press line of big books. The eighth episode is always dedicated to Smallville. And then I start all over again. Now, I've been known to use those six episodes for a mini-series dedicated to a single topic, idea, character, theme, or just or whatever else. And after my freaking huge 100th episode, I plan to spend the rest of 200... The rest of uh, 2015 and a good bit of 2016 going through a lot of six episode miniseries like that. And after my freaking huge 100th episode, I plan to spend the rest of 2015 and a good bit of 2016 going through a lot of different six episode miniseries just like that. For that reason, right now I'm just enjoying the quiet time because shit's really getting out of control later on. To me, it seems logical to make the most of it right now by talking about comics that mostly have nothing to do with one another. Last time, I talked about a shitload of Batman comics. This time around, though, I'm revisiting the Garth Ennis Punisher Max series. I told you I'd come back to it, you remember? Now, as I said back in episode number 72, which was all about In the Beginning, the first storyline from this title, Garth Ennis writes the Punisher the way I always wanted the character to, to be written, but, like, I didn't know how to ask for it. You see, this Punisher isn't quite like the mainstream Marvel Universe version of this character. The Max Punisher is a lot more hardcore, and he's a lot more successful with his job. He's killed all or most of the main movers and shakers of the Mafia. And because of that, the Mafia is being led right now by nobodies. Third stringers and psychopaths that have no business trying to run organized crime. The regular Marvel Universe has the Punisher confronting mobster after mobster after mobster, and nothing ever changes. And people, for being supposedly the most realistic character in comics, that ain't how it would go. 
there are only so many people in the world who are qualified to be part of the Mafia in the first place. And if the Punisher kills all or most of them, they can't be instantly replaced with someone else. So, what we see in this Punisher Max series is a Punisher who's actually succeeding in his job. That's part of what makes this Punisher so awesome for me. He's been killing criminals for decades now, and the, attri the attrition is really starting to improve things. At least in some ways. Anyway. So I love the Punisher Max, and because of that, and because there's no telling how long it's going to be before I get the chance to talk more about this title, I wanted to ramble about another Punisher Max story before, like I said, I get balls deep in all different kinds of miniseries and stuff. So this time around, I'll be talking about the storyline called Kitchen Irish. The deal here is that the Punisher faces off with several Irish street gangs, all of whom are trying like hell to find a stash of $10 million that some other Irish gangster left behind after he died. And of course, there's tons of carnage and shit going on. This type of story is something that we that would ultimately really come to define this version of the Punisher. Ennis had a tendency to bring very real-world elements into his stories. And obviously that's what's going on here with the bombings, the Irish street gangs, the IRA, and all that stuff. But I'll comment more on that later. For right now, though, let's get into it. This is Punisher Volume 6, Number 7, Kitchen Irish Part 1, released in August of 2004. Writers Garth Ennis, pencilers Leandro Fernandez, Inker is Leandro Fernandez. Colorist is De uh, Dean White. Letterer is Randy Gentile. Editor is Al Axel Alonzo. Editor-in-chief is Joe Casada. Cover artist is Tim Bradstreet. The Punisher walks through Hell's Kitchen, lamenting the neighborhood's uh, name change to Clinton and the recent pseudo-gentrification of the area while on his way to uh, Cary Castle Bar. As he eats his meal, an explosion rips through the diner, which he survives, though he's briefly knocked unconscious, and he survives most, mostly through luck alone. He wakes up to find most of the rest of the diners have been a lot less fortunate than he has, and after watching a waitress die, he snaps to action by helping one of the few survivors. Paramedics arrive, taking over work on the hurt boy, clearing out other survivors, and stitching up and releasing the Punisher. The police officers that arrive on the scene pin the explosion on the Irish Republican Army, which is to say the IRA, based on the bomb's composure. Elsewhere, Peter Cooley's talking to his uncle, the faceless Finn Cooley, and Michael Morrison about the bombing. Morrison said that had the bomb g gone off when they intended, they'd have killed all, their all of their opposition in one go, possibly even McGinty. Finn replies that McGinty would have been too smart to show up before complaining about their use of a wireless detonator being disrupted by someone randomly using the, the uh, same frequency. Peter wonders aloud if their enemies, that is to say, McGinty, the River Rats, and the Westies, are going to know who set the bomb, and Finn tells them that they were never going to speak peaceably anyway. After Peter's questions about who exactly McGinty is are dismissed by sending him into the house, Michael and Finn discuss their plans for Nesbitt's millions when they finally get to it. Back at Carrie's castle, the Punisher watches Tommy Toner, leader of the New Westies, with plans to pick him up uh, to question him as to how much uh, his, his men have found out about the bombing. 
Before he can do so, however, Toner's snatched off the street by a group of men in a van. At a park, Napper French is watching his grandson Billy play. A black man with an Irish brogue... Is that even how you pronounce that word, brogue, or is that bruge? I'm not really sure how to pronounce that word. Sits on the bench next to him, asking him about his work doing Houdini's. Which is to say, cutting dead bodies into so many pieces, authorities couldn't find them. French yells to tell Nesbitt he's been retired for 30 years, but is told that the old man had actually died last year. He's then told to look across the park into the back of a van, where he sees his grandson being held with a gun to his head. For the sake of his daughter, French agrees to do anything he's asked. When asked who he's talking to, he's told the person's name is McGinty. Quote, the baddest nigger ever, ever out of Dublin town, unquote. And by the way, guys, that's their word, not mine. Don't give me shit about that. Who asks if he's ever done a Houdini on a living person. To be continued. Punisher, Volume 6, Number 8, Kitchen Irish, Part 2. Also released in August 2004. Writer is Garth Ennis. Penciler and inker are Leandro Fernandez. Colorist is Dean White. Letterer is Randy Gentile. Editor is Axel Alonso. Editor-in-chief is Joe Casada. Cover artist is Tim Bradstreet. Yorkie Mitchell and his young partner, Andy Lorimer, sit at a diner near the exploded Cary Castle bar, discussing America until the Punisher shows up, whom Mitchell addresses as Frank. Elsewhere, Napper French is pleading with McGinty not to make him cut up a living person, telling him it's hard enough when they're dead, all the while speaking in code so his grandson doesn't realize what they're discussing. He finally relents, so, so long as the boy is kept away from the violence, and after he's taken, uh, taken away... French is introduced to a tied-up Tommy Toner and told, uh, and, and told to start with Tommy's left hand. On the Hudson River, a gang of three small boats swarm on a yacht. The, boat, uh, the boat's occupants climb aboard the yacht and, brandishing guns and knives, uh, take the pilot hostage. Ide- identifying themselves as the River Rats, they go below decks, telling the occupants they, that... Uh, they watch their waters and have seen them go on trips every weekend. They rob the people on the boat for their valuables and leave, deciding on, uh, deciding on the way out that the cops will be watching the waters after this, so they should use the time to look into this other thing. Quote, unquote. In the diner, Mitchell tells the Punisher that he's on MI6 business without U.S. government approval, looking for Finn Cooley. He runs down Cooley's background, including imprisonment for murder and a bomb he'd planted outside a Belfast police station which exploded in his face and which disfigured him. After that, he connects him to Michael Morrison, whom Castle knows does extensive work with the Russian mob. He explains that Finn now claims membership in the uh, continuity Irish Republican Army and likely is using Morrison as an American fundraiser for the group. Now Mitchell's in America to put an end to Finn, even though the U.S. government won't sanction an assassination, and so he decided to call in Castle to help him. On the river, Danny's celebrating the River Rat's latest score when she's ordered to calm down by Polly, who in turn is told to relax by Eamon. Is that even how you pronounce that name, Eamon? E-A-M-O-N, Eamon? I don't know. Anyway, when another member suggests to Eamon that Polly's jealous of Eamon and Danny's relationship, Eamon pushes him out of the boat for suggesting it since Polly's his sister and would have nothing to be jealous about. 
In the diner, Mitchell tells Castle that Lorimer is not an official part of his operation, but was brought along as a favor to his father. Lorimer shows him a picture of Peter Cooley and explains that it's the man who shot his father to death in Ireland. The Punisher relates to wanting that, t- that level of revenge and tells Mitchell to make sure this is a one-off as he leaves. Meanwhile, McGinney calls in a delivery company to schedule a, package, uh, a package's pickup for a same-day delivery. After listening to him complain about the price, his thugs call him cheap and suggest he take the package himself. McGinty reacts violently, saying that the Westies uh, know him and that the point is to scare them when they open this and the subsequent packages containing the uh, parts of Tommy Toner's body. At another bar, O'Malley's, Finn and Peter Cooley and Michael Morrison sit in a booth discussing the Irish, Irish Americans, and the IRA. Finn mentions being sick of the whole thing, which Peter questions, but their discussion's interrupted by a bar patron raising a toast to Finn. As people are raising their glasses, the Punisher walks in bearing a shotgun and telling anyone who doesn't want to die for Ireland to leave through the back. To be continued. Punisher, Volume 6, Number 9, Kitchen Irish, Part 3. Published in September of 2004, Writer is Garth Ennis, penciler and inker are Leandro Fernandez, colorist is Dean White, letterer is Randy Gentile, editor is Axel Alonso, editor-in-chief is Joe Casada, cover artist is Tim Bradstreet. People flood out the back of O'Malley's bar, unaware that Yorkie Mitchell and Andy Lorimer are, are watching them from behind trash cans. Mitchell reminds Lorimer that they're supposed to take a prisoner even if it's the guy who shot his father. Inside, the Punisher holds his shotgun on Peter and Finn Cooley and Michael Morrison. Before he can ask them any questions, though, the River Rats walk into the front door, distracting him, and he shoots Danny in the head. Morrison and the Cooleys run for it as the River Rats continue into the bar, returning fire. Mitchell and Lorimer shoot low at the fleeing Cooley and Morrison, hitting Peter and sending the other two back into the bar's storeroom. There they find a hostage whom they, whom they use to secure their escape, leaving Peter to his fate. At Polly's word, the River Rats begin uh, a pullout of the bar, losing members to, uh, to, the, to a Punisher-tossed grenade as they go. The survivors regroup near the docks, where Polly realizes that if Finn Cooley's in town, the thing about Nesbitt's money must be real and calls some cousins to fill out the River, the river Rat ranks to help them get it. In the Punisher's base, Mitchell lets the tied-up Peter Cooley know that if he's aware of his identity and crimes. Cooley promises he won't scream for a Brit, who says he'll turn him over to the Punisher. The Punisher wants answers about why the Cary Castle was bombed, or Lorimer, uh, whose father was killed. Elsewhere, Finn's covered his scarred face in tape and asks Morrison who exactly... Uh, it was in the bar that fucked everything up. He tells him about the Punisher and mentions the British hit squad and suggests dropping the entire operation, which pisses Finn off, who just threw his nephews to the wolves for all this. Finn goes on a loud rant about having been somebody's, quote, nigger, unquote. And again, people, this is in the fucking comic book, so don't give me, don't give me attitude about using that word. Finn goes on a loud rant about having been someone's nigger his entire life, causing a group of African-Americans to crowd around them. Because probably those African-Americans kind of wanted to know what he meant by that when he used the N-word. At the Punisher's lair, 
Peter continues to say he won't betray Finn Cooley. Mitchell mocks his dedication since Finn left him to be captured, and after pointing out that Peter has never once been arrested or interrogated like his Uncle Finn, asks him if he's sure he wants to go through with this. With that, he turns him over to the Punisher who, brandishing a butterfly knife, walks towards him, ostensibly to remove the bullets from his leg. Mitchell and Lorimore leave him to it, with Lorimore having second thoughts about leaving Cooley to be tortured by the Punisher. Mitchell tells him the least he can do for his father who saved his life twice, is give his son a shot at his murderer, and then dismisses him to get some fresh air instead of listen to Cooley scream. The Westies take a pet F box to Brenda Toner, who identifies the hand as belonging to her husband Tommy. She figures that it's McGinty that sent the hand, and grabbing a gun from a cabinet, says to call everyone around so they can go after Nesbitt's $10 million, which McGinty is trying to scare them away from. Back in Hell's Kitchen, McGinty's uh, preparing another package. Napper French asks him if he's done enough yet and is told no. Before McGinty uh, leaves, he takes a long look at French's grandson, Billy, asleep, chained to a radiator. In the Punisher's lair, Peter Cooley finally breaks and tells all about the $10 million. According to Peter, Finn's going to use the money to buy weapons for the struggles. He tells the names of the players seeking it, all of which Castle recognizes except for McGinty, in the midst of having placed the bomb in the bar to take everyone out all at once. When he can't provide Finn's accurate location, the Punisher tells him that unless he can handle some real pain, he better give up some information because he passed out at just the removal of his bandages earlier. To be continued. Punisher, Volume 6, Number 10, Kitchen Irish, Part 4. Published in October 2004. Writer is Garth Ennis, penciler and inker are Leandro Fernandez, colorist is Dean White, letterer is Randy Gentile, editor is Axel Alonso, editor-in-chief is Joe Casada. cover artist is Tim Bradstreet. Peter Cooley, being held by the Punisher, Yorkie Mitchell, and Andy Lorimore tell all about Nesbitt and when he, uh, and when he ran Hell's Kitchen. Included in his story is Nesbitt's name for everyone, shower of cunts, and the fact that everyone hated him, but no one ever did anything about him. Peter tells about how his uncle Finn worked with Nesbitt before his accident, though he's unclear on what exactly they did together, mentions that Tommy Toner hung around him for a time and perpetuated the, the Westie name as a tribute to a man he once admired, and tells about how Polly and Eamon, who now belong to the River Rats, were around as well, saying that he believes Nesbitt to be their great uncle. Hoping to extract more information, the Punisher uh, cuts him off when he mentions McGinty, but Peter only knows the barest essentials on the man. Getting back to the story, Peter tells his captors that after Nesbitt died a year ago, Finn got a letter from a lawyer inviting him to a share of his will. Himself, the River Rats, Tommy Toner, and McGinty each received a piece of a code directing them to $10 million. Apparently, the letter explained that Nesbitt wanted Hell's Kitchen cleaned up and put back together as his legacy instead of having it torn apart by the gangs as it was. It was after Toner invited Finn to a sit-down that he decided to bomb the Cary Castle and get the full-coded message from the lawyer. Mitchell, Lorimer, and the Punisher move into another room to talk, with the Punisher deciding Peter's telling the truth as he believes it, but not trusting that Nesbitt suddenly softened before his death. At the Pot of Gold Bar, Brenda Toner and the remaining Westies look over some recently arrived packages containing parts of Brenda's husband, Tommy. 
A soldier asks Brenda what they're going to do next, and she replies with a speech, explaining that she's in charge now. She knows that it's McGinty sending the body parts, and they will not be scared off. Further, she tells them if they can work together and do this correctly, they'll have the payday of the century. But if not, they'll all be seeing each other for the rest of their fucking lives. Lorimer wonders aloud why the Hell's Kitchen gangs didn't call a truce to get to the $10 million, which the Punisher dismisses out of hand because they've hated each other their entire lives. He also dismisses setting them up, but says he can follow them until they congregate in a place good for a firefight. Meanwhile, McGinney calls the pot of gold, telling Brenda's number two, Jerry, that they'll trade Tommy back alive for their part of the code. Brenda decides to take him up on the meat at the USS Intrepid, but to get his part of the code, rather than her husband. Finn Cooley and Michael Morrison are watching the pot of gold from a car down the street, nursing wounds from a beating that could have been worse when they see the Westies take off and follow them. River Rat Eamon gets a tip from Patty, bartender at the pot of gold, that the Westies got a phone call and lit out. After they dismiss them, Eamon and his sister Polly have a conversation about her possibly budding relationship with Bunk, which she denies. He tells her he's just, he's just looking out for her, like always, and she verbally assails him, asking where he was when their father abused her. She lets it go, however, and tells them they'll sit tight until their people in the Westies contact them with information on where they've gone to make their pending score easier. Meanwhile, Napper French sits on the bed with the butchered and in-shock Tommy Toner, rhetorically asking him why he won't die. McGinty enters, agreeing that he's a fighter, then brings in French's grandson Billy, who runs from the room in tears. French tries to go after him, calling McGinty a monster, but McGinty stops him, saying he's the monster for the work he's been doing for the past two days. Elsewhere, on the Intrepid, Mitchell and Lorimer lay atop a Concorde with a machine gun. The Westies arrive and begin to fan out, causing the Punisher to open fire on them from a Huey helicopter. Mitchell does the same, explaining to Lorimer to take out anyone giving orders first in these, in these types of situations, and how to herd them where you want them to go. Finn and Morrison arrive by car, with Morrison not wanting to board the Intrepid, and the River Rats come by boat, echoing the sentiment. McGinty and his crew, however, have been there from the start and are on top of the Huey, housing the Punisher and just waiting to take him out. To be continued. Punisher, Volume 6, Number 11, Kitchen Irish, Part 5. Published in November 2004. Writer is Garth Ennis, penciler is Leandro Fernandez, inker is Leandro Fernandez, colorist is Dean White, letterer is Randy Gentile, Editor is Axel Alonso. Editor-in-chief is Joe Casada. Cover artist is Tim Bradstreet. A New York Police Department helicopter flies over the USS Intrepid, reporting back the ma- about the massive gunfight taking place below. As soon as they spot the Punisher among the participants, firing at members of the Westie gang from a parked helicopter, they call in for tactical assistance. Meanwhile, Yorkie Mitchell reminds the Punisher that he and Andy Lorimore can't be caught there, and he tells them to take off and he'll meet them on the water below. Finn Cooley and Michael Morrison spot the arriving police officers and they decide to wait in their car. McGinney's crew, who are hiding atop the helicopter, begin to move on the Punisher, only to have one of their feet fall through a panel in the ceiling. 
The Punisher whips around and fires up, hitting everyone but McGinty, who dives off and makes a getaway. The surviving Westies continue to shoot at Castle, unused to the power of their fully automatic weapons, and he's able to launch a grenade into their mist to cover his escape. As all of that's going on, Jerry scoops up the injured Brenda, Brenda Toner, and the two come across her husband Tommy's severed head as they attempt to leave. Jerry, realizing McGinty is about to is uh, is aboard the Intrepid, loses his composure and starts to run, leaving Brenda and running straight into McGinty's machete. Brenda fires at Machete with a concealed pistol, missing as he runs, and makes an escape via zipline. The River Rats are deciding to leave, having watched the goings-on from a boat below, when Bunk sees the Punisher leaving the boat and takes aim. He's shouted down, but gives away their position to Lorimer, who's in a nearby boat, who in turn fires at the Rats. Their inflatable boat sinking, an injured Bunk recommends Polly and Eamon jump ship and hop into another one while he acts as a decoy upsetting Polly, who professes her love for him. As she swims, carrying her brother, over to the next boat, she watches as Bunk dies at Yorkie Mitchell's hands. At the same time, Brenda Toner tries to crawl down McGinney's zipline, but falls. Climbing stairs to the shore, she's met by Finn Cooley, who offers her a ride. Meanwhile, McGinty arrives at home, where he's ambushed and knocked unconscious by Napper French, who drags him into a room with a bare bed and a collection of knives. Meanwhile, at the Punisher's lair, he and Mitchell explain to Lorimer that they did enough to the gangs to leave them with no option but to talk about a truce, making them easy pickings. Mitchell then takes a sandwich to Peter Cooley, while the two trade insults about the way the Irish and the British fight wars. Back at the pot of gold, Finn gives Brenda first aid. He, tells, uh, he points out that she's running out of Westies and goes over how similar they are, and that neither of them will give up uh, their part of the code, and so he recommends that they work together. She agrees, as long as it's a one-off. As they wait for for dark, Eamon reminisces about Polly walking across from a from a frozen Hudson River when they were kids. Polly dismisses the rest of the New River Rats when they complain that this isn't what they signed up for, and then tells her brother to get his fucking head on straight and help her out against McGinty. Mitchell and Peter Cooley have a long discussion in the Punisher's lair. After, Pun after Mitchell accuses his Uncle Finn of wanting Nesbitt's money for himself again, the two discuss the, the differences a British soldier fighting the IRA as a job, which is to say not really caring, uh, as it were, despite bombings of the mainland, and leaves them with advice to make peace with God because as soon as Finn's dead, Andy will be killing him. McGinney wakes up to find himself shackled to the bed with Napper French standing above him, sharpening knives. To be concluded. Punisher, Volume 6, Number 12, Kitchen Irish, Part 6. Cover date is December of 2004. Writer is Garth Ennis. Penciler and inker are Leandro Fernandez. Colorist is Dean White. Letterer is Randy Gentile. Editor is Axel Alonso. Editor-in-chief is Joe Casada. Cover artist is Tim Bradstreet. A naked Napper French, while standing above the tied-up McGinty, instructs him on the proper way to set up a Houdini, including getting the proper knives and applying plastic to the walls. As he begins to cut the fingers off McGinty's left hand, a few thugs enter, shooting French with a shotgun. 
After a few seconds thought, he decides to put his fingers on ice and go directly after ne uh, Nesbitt's money. Finn Cooley calms Brenda Toner down when McGinty walks into the pot of gold saying he was expecting him. McGinty briefly reflects on Nesbitt, calling him Patty the Monkey when he was a child and throwing peanuts at him when Eamon and Polly enter the bar. Deciding none of the gangs need to fear Nesbitt from the grave, they put their codes together, coming up with a grid reference they check against the map. As all four know the location, they begin to reach for their guns, causing Michael Morrison to smash a bottle on the bar and scream at the lot of them that they were so close to peace and being free of the past and they don't need to go backwards. Outside, the Punisher, Yorkie Mitchell, and Andy Lorimore watch the gangs leave together peaceably. Mitchell decides there are too many civilians around to go after them now, but the Punisher thinks to himself that he still doesn't trust the sudden altruistic change in Nesbitt's personality. The gangs arrive at a derelict freighter with the Punisher and the Brits on their tail. While the leaders explore the inside, McGinney's crew is put on watch and stealthily killed. The Punisher tosses a stun grenade into the ship among the gang's leaders, but his attempt to join them is disrupted by Finn being able to cover his eyes in time and throw a, st a standard grenade back. Finn and the Punisher fight uh, in the shin-deep water while the other gang leaders leave to try to locate the $10 million. Topside, Morrison attempts to give himself up to Mitchell, who shoots him in the chest. Polly abandons her brother, who was shot during the confusion from the stun grenade. Mitchell drags the Punisher out of the ship while the gang leaders discover the lockbox. Opening it, they find a timer set for three seconds connected to a, a brick of plastic explosives with cunts carved into it. As the ship explodes, Lorimer pulls Mitchell and the Punisher onto his boat and pilots it away before the cops arrive. The next day, Lorimer takes Peter Cooley out of a trunk and, holding a pistol on him, walks him into a small building. Cooley asks if he can pray, and Lorimer says he doesn't care. In the car, the Punisher says he doesn't need a ride back home and, getting out, warns Mitchell not to come around anytime soon. Lorimer comes back, hands the gun to Mitchell, and says he doesn't feel any different, and Mitchell asks him if he thinks Frank does after his 30 years of doing this exact same thing. The end. So, what did I think? Honestly, I think a lot of this comes down to a generation gap. See, I came of age right around the time that the whole IRA bullshit in Ireland was winding down. And so because of that, I'm really not connected to the material here. And I don't want that to sound as bad or insensitive as it probably does. So just let me use an analogy, all right? Subsequent generations who were born when the Cold War was winding down are never going to really understand what the hubbub was all about when it comes to arms races and mutually assured destruction, spy games, Soviet paranoia, and other bullshit. It's just beyond them. And so, to a degree, that's pretty much how I'm coming at the IRA angle of this story. Not trying to minimize how serious it was or anything. It's just that it doesn't grip me on a gut level the way a story about, well, I don't know, Islamic terrorism might. 
Because that's more my generation than the IRA. And honestly, even being the age I am, I'd probably connect more to the IRA thing if I were Irish, but I'm not. I'm American. Still, based on what we're presented with here, Garth Ennis tells a pretty good story on a technical level. But since I'm a complete outsider when it comes to that part of history, it's hard for the story to hit me right between the eyes the same way it probably would for someone who's maybe 10 or 15 years older than I am. And this is really made all the worse by the fact that Ennis doesn't really do a whole lot to break down exactly what the IRA is, what they did, who their members were, what became of them, and so forth. And so because of that, you're disconnected not only from the immediate story, but also really the historical significance of it, of the IRA. Still, on technical levels, the characters are well-written and the story's well-told. At least to me, it stands to reason that the Punisher would do and say what this story shows us. So, that much isn't the issue. And what I think... What, what I think this speaks to is a little bit of a weakness in the Garth Ennis run on the Max Punisher series. I said in my episode about the in-the-beginning storyline that Ennis is my Punisher writer. I just don't really feel like I need to read anybody else's take on the character. But that certainly is not to suggest that the Ennis run is flawless. And this story is a good indicator of what I'm talking about. As a matter of fact, the prevailing sentiment online seems to be that the Garth Ennis Punisher is badass. It just needs a little bit of time to really get going. And as it happens, I kind of agree with that. When I think about it, I would wager that probably something like 99% of the really cool shit that Garth Ennis did with this title, actually takes place a little further along in the book's run. The stuff leading up to that point is... Honestly, it's a little uneven. But the art is definitely not uneven. Leandro Fernandez perfectly captures the mood and the tone of the story. He understands that this is a pretty grounded and realistic universe that he's working in, and so he stays true to that. Now, Louis LaRosa drew the in-the-beginning storyline that I talked about in my last Punisher episode, but Leandro Fernandez is the artist of Kitchen Irish, and I would think it goes without saying that Leandro Fernandez is not Louis LaRosa. And ultimately, I think that's a good thing. Fernandez's style is less realistic than LaRosa's gritty and grounded stuff, and honestly, that's really not an insult to either artist. It's, it's really it's just an observation. But there's enough grit and reality to Fernandez's art to remind you that, yes, this is the Punisher Max that we're talking about here. Having said that, though, you'd never confuse these two artists with one another. And, as I say, I think that's a good thing. Fernandez is uh, plenty of detail in the art, but he never really loses himself in all the, the blood and the gore, even though blood and gore are a major part of the first issue of the story. 
Hell, I'd go so far as to say it's indispensable. Still, Fernandez gives you just enough so that you get the idea of all the carnage and stuff that's going on, but he never goes totally over the top with it. An example of what I'm talking about here is the bombing of the restaurant in part one of the story. I mean, yeah, it's a bloody fucking mess. There's no two ways about that, but go back and count how many panels are actually soaked with blood. It's strange to think that there's not as many of all of, uh, as many instances of blood and gore by quantity as you might think. Another thing, though, is Leandro Fernandez is really good at facial expressions. Things like shock, surprise, anger, pain, confusion, happiness, boredom. I mean, dude can do it all. And I gotta tell you, that's a pretty fucking rare skill. Leandro Fernandez is a good storyteller, but he's also just a good draftsman. And, at least in my opinion, he does a masterful job at the story here. So, I guess what I'm driving at is, the art really rescues the writing here, because the story just isn't as powerful as in the beginning, or, God knows, a lot of stuff that's coming down the pipeline with this series. So, ultimately, I think of Kitchen Irish, and stories like it, as sort of means to an end. If you're wanting to read the entire Garth Ennis run on The Punisher, you pretty much have to read Kitchen Irish. And at least for me, it's just not the most pleasant experience in the entire world. But it's got to be done. At least if you want to really enjoy the awesomeness that's coming in the future. So all in all, I would say it's probably a pretty average story that I'd probably enjoy a lot more if I had maybe a little bit more of a perspective on the main themes and the conflicts and the players involved in this story. But since I don't, average is just about the best I can say. But hey, if you're older than me and you remember only too well all that IRA craziness, then you may get more into and more out of this story than I did. Either way. I'm going to take a break and be right back after these messages. You know, a dear friend once said to me, it's a lot of fun when everyone's a dork of some sort or another. And... I thought not only are those words to live by, it's an idea worth celebrating. So that's why I created Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that is about, well, let's just say it's completely random. (laughs) One episode might be about movies, the next might be about comics, the next might be about music. All that matters is that I'm giving you a recap and critique of stuff I enjoy and you're having as much fun as I am, or at least I hope. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, The Sworn Testimony of a Dork. You can find a new episode at least once a month at popcultureaffidavit.podomatic.com and notes, essays, and other stuff once a week at popcultureaffidavit.com.
on May 30th, 2011, DC Comics announced the historic renumbering of all their superhero titles, and the internet broke in half. Not true. That's impossible. Critics and naysayers abounded. Confusion reigned across fandom. What'll I do? What'll I do? What an unusual view. Not to mention the first reactions to the Supergirl costume. I hated her so much. It it the it flame flames flames on the side of my face, breathing breathless. Heaving breaths. Heaving. But then the books actually hit. And opinions... He likes it. He likes it. Opinions began to change. The New 52 Adventures of Superman is a monthly podcast where John Wilson, J. David Weider, and Michael Kaiser take a look at each of the adventures of Superman and his family of characters in Action Comics. You know the deal, Metropolis. Treat people right. Or expect a visit from me. The Superman who appeared six months ago could hurdle skyscrapers and toss trucks around. Now it's faster, now it's stronger. How soon before it can't be stopped? Superboy. If resolving a situation for him is going to get me out from under these people once and for all, that's a small price to pay for freedom. Release the Superboy. Supergirl. Okay. Giant metal creatures. Falling from the sky, speaking in clicks and beeps. Father would love this dream. And Superman. You could do so much good. We could do so much good. I am doing good, Lois. Clark's such a loner. Never really lets anyone get close to him. The new 52 Adventures of Superman. Available the first of every month on iTunes and at new52superman.libsyn.com. got just a couple of emails to go through here. Some some of my loyal subjects have sent in, well, just some feedback, and so I'm going to get through as much of this as I can. So I've actually got a huge amount of feedback to have to go through here, but uh, I think I'm only going to have time to get through just a couple. So first up, this email comes from frequent correspondent, Fanboy MS Prime. The title of the email is The Future and Beyond. Dated August the 5th, 2014, Fanboy Ms. Prime writes, Hey Magnus, you asked us to email about uh, dark futures and such in the media, and there's one interesting thing. Star Trek's history, especially to what is the near future and now the past, were actually very dark. First, we had the eugenics wars in the 1990s between Khan and other genetically engineered augments. A series of books covering Khan's life makes that into a hidden war on the Earth, 
and the con comic for the reboot track makes it a more public conflict, but it was still a major war. I'm going to put this email on pause and say, that I did not know. Um, I guess the assumption that I've always had about Star Trek was that it was a fundamentally positive view of the future. Now, I've seen Wrath of Khan, but I haven't seen whichever uh, episode of the original series that had Khan in it. Or I guess if I have, it just doesn't stand out in my memory. So either way, though, it, it comes to be about the same. So I really cannot say that I'm any type of a uh, any type of an authority or anything like that about pretty much anything to do with Star Trek. And so this is something I didn't know. Actually, you're you're kicking some science on me here. I, I had no idea about that. So anyway, to get back into Prime's email, though, he writes: Then we had World War III and the post-atomic horror afterward. The later we got in the story, the first story of uh, TNG when Trek's creator was in charge. That, along with Tasha Yar growing up on and escaping somehow a gone-to-shit planet that had rape gangs and such running around, makes me wonder why anyone claims Deep Space Nine and such made Trek dark. When even the idealist who wants to show humanity is supposedly perfect and better shows that one planet has gone to hell and Earth's history getting to the Federation isn't all sunshine, makes it clear that humanity has gotten better and improved, but that doesn't mean we're even close to being saints. And I'm going to put this email back on pause and say, dude, that's the exact type of thing that I'm talking about, all right? I did not know that. Now, again, my knowledge of Trek basically comes down to, I would say, the first season of the original series, a lot of original series movies, uh, TNG, and then some TNG movies. Otherwise, I really don't know a whole lot about Star Trek. And Deep Space Nine is one of those sort of notorious blind spots when it comes to my Trek knowledge. Just really haven't uh, ever had a, either time or inclination. I'm mean, Pick one. But I've never really had time or inclination to sort through all of that stuff. And uh, I don't know. I guess just work through it. Never really uh, had the time for it. And honestly, I think a lot of that comes down to, I guess, how impenetrable. I don't even know if that's the right word. But there's just, it feels like there's so much more going on with Star Trek in terms of ancillary stories and things like that, background information that you wouldn't necessarily know just by watching the TV shows or the movies or whatever you've got in front of you. And, by the way, that may sound like an unintentional indictment of the original timeline, and maybe it was time to do a quasi-reboot like we got with the J.J. Abrams movies. Certainly not making that claim. Just saying that this is one of those things that I can fairly well say I knew nothing about. So, once again... Prime, you're, you're sort of kicking some science on me here. Anyway, uh, get back into Prime's email, he writes, And of course, let's not forget all those 80s and earlier post-atomic wasteland movies. So, the public's been caught up in dark futures for a lot longer than just right now, Magnus. I'm going to put this email back on pause and say, You know what, dude, I get that. But it just kind of feels like, at once, there were positive views of the future. You know, in the midst, all of those post-apocalyptic 
Mad Max type of futures, there were also alternate visions of the future that made it really seem like, you know what, the future is going to be a kind of cool place to live. And I think maybe the best example of that is Star Trek, at least the way most people think of it, among which I count myself. Then you've got stuff like the Legion of Superheroes and shit. If you really want to get down to the nitty gritty, you could argue that the Jetsons is included in that. So I'm not trying to argue the point or anything. I mean, I'm just saying that it feels like it's a relatively recent thing that every single vision of the future that we have is shit. Whereas there, I swear to think, and I want to believe that history kind of backs me up on this, swear to think that there was a time when you had more than one outlook on the future. And if you really want to get, I don't know, maybe a little too interpretive about things, I would argue that Terminator 2 ultimately had a very positive view of mankind's future. You get the impression, if all you watched were the first two Terminator movies, those two and nothing else, that really, Judgment Day had been av- had been averted, and ultimately it was all going to be a happy ending, you know? And now, obviously, the Terminator franchise has to continue existing, and so, of course, it can't be that simple. But I'm talking about as a duology of, you know, two films who tell maybe kind of dark, apocalyptic tales about at least a potential future. It is possible that, you know, you can view, I think, Terminator 2 in ultimately very positive terms, especially when it, re- when it regards technology and, and the like. And maybe that's too much to go into in a feedback section, but nevertheless, I do feel like you can at least make the argument. So, you know, I understand your point. I just, I can't help but think that this is just a little bit of an oversimplification to things, that's all. So, anyway, getting back into a Prime email, a Prime's email, he continues, and yes, I have mentioned the whole Trek thing in an email to Star Trek Monthly Mondays. It does bother me when people all go, Deep Space Nine made Star Trek dark and not Gene's vision of the future. Because... The elements were already there. Now, if they don't like those elements being highlighted, that's another thing entirely. Anyway, on to Superman Beyond. It was a fun look at that comic. Though, there's one other person around from the old days that Superman knows that's still part of the Justice League, and that's Big Barda. Though she's given a new god and all that, her her perspective on what had happened would be way different than Kal-El's, and really won't help him. I'm going to put this email on pause and say, I'd heard that Big Barda pops up later on in the series, and I knew I was not going to get a chance to talk about that in the issues that I was covering. But yeah, that was actually something that I was aware of, and I was kind of coming at it from the same point of view that you were, that honestly, I don't think that she's going to have necessarily as rose-colored a view of how things used to be that Superman does. But I think my argument on that, you know, or maybe I guess me, the the counterpoint on that was going to be that she has a much more balanced view of the present. It's not as dark and hopeless as Superman. I don't want to say that he angsted over because I don't really think that's what he was doing in that series. But it, I guess to the degree that Superman's ever going to go through a midlife crisis, you know, I do think he would benefit from Barda's perspective, at least about the present. Not so much the past. 
but the present. You know, someone who can kind of kick them in the pants and just give them a little bit of a of a different angle on things. And honestly, I've always felt like that's one of the things that all of the new gods could bring uh, to Superman. That no matter what type of adversity that he's struggling against, the I, the the entire fourth world concept ultimately speaks of I don't know maybe uh, a range of extremes you've got the ultimate extreme of evil personified obviously by apocalypse and this who's to say could be mankind's future at some point and then you've got the other angle of new genesis where you know what this is this could also be what superman is ultimately leading mankind toward you know and so I think Big Barda could actually have, you know, a point of view on all of that. Now, should that be a major aspect of the Superman mythos that, you know, people talk about to this day and should be interwoven in there with the fabric of things like the Daily Planet and Jimmy Olsen and Lois Lane and all that stuff? Well, you know what? Maybe not. All right. But it just feels to me like there is a, I don't know, larger agenda or a broader view of things that I think Barda could give that Superman maybe could have used in Superman Beyond. And you know what? For all I know, maybe that's where things ended up ended up going. I don't know. So, uh, as to Prime, though, uh, getting back into his email, uh, he continues with, On Lex Luthor trying to be the one fighting the alien menace plaguing humanity? Personally, I like to think it's even more that Lex just can't understand Superman's wanting to help others because it's the right thing to do. That's even more alien to Lex than Superman being from another planet. On a side note, involving Brian Azzarello, he can kiss my ass as he insulted fans of the pulp characters when he was the writer for DC's first wave series. As in, they were old and such. Not everyone who finds the pulp heroes interesting is that old, Brian. And also given that's part of your audience, dumbass, try not to insult them to their face. Also, read the pulps and not fuck them up, shithead. And I'm going to put Prime's email on pause here and say, you know what? Dude, I did not read DC's first wave series. And I think a, a great big part of that is the very type of thing that you're, that you're talking about here. It's not that I knew for a fact that Azarello was going to shit all over it. But I got to tell you, you know, I'm kind of sick and tired of being the only person in the room that, you know, people kind of look at sideways when I say that I do not like the... Oh, fuck, now I'm blanking on the guys. Howard Shaken's uh, Shadow miniseries from the 80s. And then that revolting piece of shit ongoing series that spun out of it that ran for like 17, 18 issues or something like that. Because it, it really felt like uh, Howard Shaken, and I forget who wrote the ongoing series. It might have been Andy Helfer. I forget who. But fucking somebody, whoever it was, that wrote the ongoing series that spun out of the Howard Shaken Shadow miniseries. It just kind of felt like they were determined to shit all over everything that makes the Shadow awesome. Really for no reason. I didn't really feel like too much of anything was being accomplished there. It just felt like it was sort of an intentional middle finger to Shadow fans. And I always felt like, you know, pulp characters and their fans, this is one of the few times when 
it can fairly well be said, yeah, we do want our grandfather's shadow, as a matter of fact. And my every attempt to talk about the shadow on this podcast has always been foiled by outside interference, let us say. And so I haven't really had a chance to really say my piece about the shadow. And I would say maybe pulp characters in general, but I guess what I'm driving at is, dude, I completely understand where you're coming from on that. And honestly, I guess if you want to maybe put it in different terms to kind of help you understand where I'm coming from, I have a very specific view of Superman. Now, no, he's not a pulp character. Like I said, this is an analogy. But to kind of put it in other terms, I've got a very specific view of Superman. There are certain things I want to see that character do. There are certain other things that I want to see that character never do. And if what it takes for Superman to be successful and commercially viable is for him to be basically the antithesis of everything that he is, I would just assume Superman would be dead, buried, and forgotten. Okay, That's how much the character means to me. I would rather see his purity maintained in extinction than compromised in commercial success. And that's kind of the same way that I feel about pulp characters, most especially the Shadow, just because that's the one that I'm most familiar with. I've got a very specific view of the Shadow, and what Howard Shaken did with that character back in the 80s, it really did feel like it was... Like it was a, a total repudiation of everything that the shadow was supposed to be, you know? And I just didn't like it. And if that's what it takes to make the shadow relevant, I would just as soon see the shadow get lost in the sands of time, all right? That's how much the character means to me, you know? And, and so I'm, I'm right there with you. I mean, I know that the shadow wasn't part of that whole first wave series. Uh, I think... I think it was Doc Savage, and of course now I'm blanking on who the other ones were, but I'm pretty sure Doc Savage was mixed up in there somewhere. And I kind of feel the same way about it. You know, I would rather see those characters never get anything new ever again, no new series, no new nothing, than get totally compromised and sullied by writers who are so determined to make those characters modern that they forget what makes those characters work in the first place. And so that's just where I'm coming from when it comes to really all pulp characters. And so, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Prime continues with, and that's why I've never really touched his Wonder Woman run. He, Brian uh, Brian Azzarello, his, one, his uh, run on Wonder Woman. Though, says a lot, of, uh, a lot about DC when they're, have, when they're having, after his run, the guy who screwed up their, their schedule with the last issue of their big event running months late and the man's wife with no comic writing credit to her name, as the pair working on the book. Maybe it'll be like when Andy Diggle was to write action comics and just last a month. I'm going to put this email back on pause and say, you know what? I've got a very limited experience with Andy Diggle. I will be the first to admit that. But I'm the guy in the room that liked uh, Daredevil and that whole Shadowland uh, event that, that Andy Diggle had going on. Because it felt like, like superficially, and I'll probably get into this uh, at some point when I actually talk about Shadowland and all that fun stuff, which I plan to do at some point, but it felt like Andy Diggle was basically taking all of the darkness and all of the just hell 
that Daredevil had been through over the last, I would say, maybe several years leading up to Shadowland, and basically just played it all out to to its logical conclusion. But, and here's the thing, rather than being destroyed by external forces, which is a very, I think, born-again type of Frank Miller sort of thing to do, Daredevil was ultimately undone by his own darkness in Shadowland. And ultimately, I think that's what separates Shadowland and then the follow-up, Daredevil Reborn, from Frank Miller's Born Again, is that there were different motives uh, going on with each story. There were, uh, Daredevil was, was ultimately motivated by different things. In Born Again, he was basically torn apart by external forces. In Shadowland, he was torn apart by himself. And that ultimately, I think, was a very different story with a very different outcome than what we saw in Born Again. And so, on the whole, I really enjoyed it. Now, there were elements of it that I wish maybe had gone a different way. Again, I'll get more into that when I actually uh, talk about Shadowland. And honestly, I have no idea when that's going to be. It's not even on my schedule. I have this huge list of different things that I want to talk about. Shadowland has not even been added to that list yet. And so, I'll tell you how far off that is. So, but it's just, Andy Diggle is one of those writers that I tend to be a little bit protective of. Because I feel like he's never really gotten his due, I guess, is maybe the better way to put it. So, I don't know. Prime goes on to say, though, that's not a slap against Andy Diggle, but just a slap at DC's musical chairs use of writers and artists at times. I'm putting your email back on pasta and and saying, yeah, I would say that's probably most affected Superman. I think that, you know, keep in mind, I mean, I washed my hands of the new 52 not very long after it started. So I'm probably the last guy to talk about this, but it feels like, you know, DC is so determined to stay the course with the new 52 that they are willing to alienate and piss off as many creators as they possibly can in order to satisfy some dickhead's ego in the editorial office, you know? And I think it's going to get to the point where if they keep up doing this, then sooner or later, you know, there's only a finite number of people out there who are in the comics game. And the the day will come where if you piss all of them off, you're eventually not going to have enough people working on all your books to maintain a complete line. Now, what are the what what are the odds of things ever getting that extremely out of control? I have no idea. All right, I just got to think that you know Andy Diggle, George Perez, uh, to some degree or another, Dan Jurgens. I mean. They and people like them are going to get so fucking sick of DC's, I guess, indecision, or maybe just dedication to some jerk's ego, that they're eventually going to say, you know what, fuck this, okay? I can go to work at Marvel and get just as as good a money, if not better, over at Marvel than I can at DC, so fuck you guys, right? I don't think that's a completely unrealistic possibility. So, now how likely is it? I have no idea. I'm just saying. So, anyway. 
Getting back into Prime's email, though, he wraps up with, Hope that was an interesting email for you, Magnus. And I say, dude, it was. Thank you very much for taking the time to write in, because you always come up with these sort of conversation stimulator type of uh, emails, and I really enjoy, you know, your perspective on things. I mean, crap, dude, the the amount of stuff that you told me about about Star Trek just now that I had no idea about. I mean, you know, you really you really laid laid it all out there as far as your expertise is concerned. So thank you. I appreciate you taking the time to write. So next up, this is an email from uh, my old friend and fellow podcaster, host of uh, Avengers Inspirations, in fact. Uh, John M. Wilson. Uh, This is an email dated September the 21st, 2014. Uh, The subject line reads, Girl Fandom and Boy Fandom. And uh, John M. Wilson writes, I humbly request to approach the presence of Your Excellency. There's a point you've made a couple of times on the show that, when you said it, my knee-jerk reaction was to take issue with it, but... I've had some thoughts, and while I'm not sure if it's an absolute truth, I do think there might be something to it. And that is the notion that girls get different things out of their fandom than boys do. Essentially that female nerdery functions in a fundamentally different way to boy nerdery. And as an example that you gave was continuity nitpicking. If I recall, you posited that girls just don't tend to immerse themselves in the details of continuity of a universe the way that guys sometimes do, that they're concerned with other aspects of the story. And actually, you know what, before I even move on with this, I'm going to put this email on pause and say, I don't know if that's exactly what I said. I, I mean, I remember making you know comments about this, at, at least at one point, but uh, I don't know if, those, if that was my exact point. I mean, look, your 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 point stands. I'm just saying that I don't know if that is precisely what I said. Um, I think probably, though, just to kind of put it all out there, I think a, a decent summation of my view on the subject is that what I think females in general respond to are, I guess, the theatricality of of comic book characters and maybe comic book art and, you know, I guess like the visuals of it and, you know, things like that and or maybe maybe specific characters and, and, and things like that, but like the minutia of, to use your example, the minutia of continuity, I don't know that they're as uptight about that as, say, I am. You know, I've got, when it comes to uh, the Burn Age uh, Superman, I consider myself to be a huge fan of that era of the character. And to me, you cannot talk about the Burn Age Superman, without beginning, middle, and end, talking about continuity. Continuity, continuity, continuity. I mean, just by virtue of what it is, it's a reboot. So, at least theoretically, everything that came before is wiped away. Second, that origin that John Byrne came up with was pretty much Superman's gospel for a lot of years there. Second, there are certain fine details about continuity that uh, Byrne introduced. And I think maybe the best example of that is the World of Krypton miniseries that basically told, up to a point, the history of Krypton before really it sort of became Jor-El's story. And so, you know, those 
concepts that I think were introduced in World of Krypton, many of them actually came home to roost in a big bad way later on during the Burn Age Superman's run. And so if you're really invested in the story, you're and you're committed to it and following it, you know, there are certain there are certain elements of continuity that are just absolutely essential that you know about in order to follow the fullness of the story, you know? And so, um, and I, and, and I guess where I'm going with that is I don't know that your average female reader or fan is going to be all that nitpicky about it. Now, yes, I'm sure it's not that hard to find instances of, women who are just as invested in the details and the and, and you know the fine print and all that stuff of uh, of continuity as I am it can't be all that difficult but my contention is they are the exceptions that prove the rule their their i guess their their geekdom is predicated upon not exactly the same exact things they're not interested in necessarily the same or at least not to the same degree not interested in the same types of things that I am. I mean, ultimately, I guess to continue with the Superman analogy, or example, we're all Superman fans. But there's an, there's something they get out of their Superman fandom that honestly is just not as important to me. Right? And my view of it is that that's not good, and it's not bad. It's just, it's true. You know? And I think it's one of those things that if... Any comic book company, but specifically Marvel and DC, since they're really the main publishers, my view is that if they really want to embrace, you know, female readers, and why wouldn't they, then I think it would be worthwhile to get a better understanding of what it is that women respond to when it comes to comics, and not even make special comics just for them, because there's a degree to which that's maybe a little, little patronizing, you know, that these are girl comics, but basically try to fine-tune their lines so that their comics can appeal to as broad an audience as possible, men and women, adults and children, you know, and that may be a tall order, and I know it's easy for some jerk-off, you know, running his podcast to say something like that, but it just, it feels to me like we're at a, we're at a point in, I guess, cultural history where... I don't think it's a good idea to to take your audience for granted. And let's face it, women are they're just getting more into into, you know, nerd culture now than I think they were even 15 or 20 years ago. You know, it's less politically incorrect for them to be here than than I think it used to be. And I say, you know what? Let's make the most of it. I say embrace it with both arms, you know, and assuming that I'm right about the about the things that I guess motivate and drive their fandom. Put more of that stuff in the books. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? You know, I don't think it's as simple as you know just saying we need to have more female characters or stupid bullshit like that. Because I don't know if that alone is what women respond to. I don't know. I don't create comics, and I'm not a woman. So I mean, I'm kind of speaking uh, about this really from. The point of view of a complete outsider, right? I don't make the comics, I'm not, and I'm not a woman who buys comics, so I don't know. But it's just based on what I've observed 
they don't get the same things out of it that I do. And so whatever it is that they do get out of it, well, look, there is continuity and myth and all of these other things in comics, you know, all of that stuff that appeals to me. There's plenty of that going in spades. So whatever it is that women respond to, let's see if we can include more of that stuff too, you know? Basically make it as appealing to them as we possibly can and as appealing to men as we possibly can, as appealing to adults, as appealing to children, everything, you know, because ultimately I think comics ought to be a very unifying medium and comic book collecting should be a very unifying hobby. And, you know, I I just feel like there's there's an opportunity to, you know, include everybody because there really is room for everybody in this hobby, you know, and honestly, obviously the, uh, obviously the, the industry needs all the help they can get, you know, sales, Jesus. So anyway, there you go. And that's kind of my little 15 minute diatribe. So, uh, whatever you want to do with that, John. <clears throat> anyway, though, uh, to get back into, uh, uh, John's, uh, John's email here, let's see, where did I drop off? Uh, and my mind rebelled because I really hesitate to make blanket statements about the hows and whys of people's personality based solely on things like skin tone, nation of origin, or which sexy parts they were born with. I'm going to put this email back on pause and say, you know what, dude? On the one hand, I understand what you know where you're coming from with this, but there's this tendency in society today to completely not just ignore the differences between men and women, to deny those differences even exist. And I don't mean this in terms of simple biology, although there's that. But, you know, there is it's just completely undeniable. You know, women have a different viewpoint of life than do men, you know? And again, it's not a good thing, and it's not a bad thing. It's just, it's a true thing, you know? And this weird obsession that people have with wanting to pretend like these differences don't exist because somehow that makes you mean-spirited or a bigot or something. I don't fucking get that. You know, it just is, it's the recognition that, you know, the things that motivate, uh, I guess, male fandom are not necessarily, in fact, probably aren't, the same things that motivate female fandom. And it's not to say that one's better than the other. It's just the recognition that they are not the same, you know? And I don't know. I mean... Well, I'll spare you my whole rant about, you know, egalitarianism, because at some point, equal started to mean the same. I don't know when the fuck that ever happened, but, you know, um, I'm not saying that, you know, uh, men and women are not equal, certainly not when it comes to fandom, but this whole idea that, you know, a woman should get the same exact bullshit out of a story that I do, I'm sorry, it's just, it's patently fucking absurd. I don't buy it. Never have, never will. Anyway. Uh, Getting back into uh, Wilson's email, though, he writes, But, and here's my thought process, see if it goes anywhere near what you were thinking. Set aside for a moment whether the fan can pee standing up. Different people get different things out of fandom. Some like the soap opera uh, character drama. Some like punchy, punchy action. Some are all about power sets and what their characters can do. And I think it's fair to say that some of those interests tend to follow personality types. For instance, I'm a huge nerd. I am a bit of a history buff. For me and my own fandom, 
The epic scope of a universe and how all the parts fit together to form a continuity, that's where I get my jollies. I love examining story details and what they tell us about the history and personalities of the world uh, I'm reading about. Hell, that's basically the thesis of any of the podcasts I've done over the years. Look at a progression of stories and talk about the continuity minutiae relating those points back to the characters, the relationships, and the history of the stories. So that's me. And I would expect, I would not be surprised, to find that others who obsess over similar aspects of fandom might have certain psychological traits in common with me. There would be trends, I expect. The technical term is correlation. So let's say we could catalog all the various interests and trends of fandom What do different people get out of being nerds on a particular topic? If we started grouping people and looking at the boundaries between different types of fandom, would we find that some of these correlations fall along the lines of sex and gender? Upon reflection, I wouldn't be surprised to find that they do. I'm going to put this email back on pause and say, you know, dude, I would hope not. I mean, look, in any time you make a movie or a TV show or just or whatever it is that you're doing sooner or later you're going to you're going to do what apparently this process is known as a focus group all right um and i think in uh, that's for TV shows and i think for movies they call it's basically the same thing but for whatever reason they call it a test screening but basically it goes like this they get a sort of a cross section of people together and some of which would include that movie or TV show's theoretical target audience, screen it for them and just just kind of record people's reactions to it. And, I mean, like to me, ultimately this whole process, it really does kind of put the lie to this whole idea of egalitarianism, you know? Um, And the best example of this that I can think of is uh, the, the focus group screenings of the pilot episode of Smallville, right? When Clark had his big showdown with the supervillain in the Smallville pilot, that tended to be when the when the boys in the audience were most engaged. You know, because you had Clark, he's getting slammed around through brick walls, he's throwing bad guys around and all this stuff, and it just, for whatever reason, hit, I don't know, it just hit their buttons. I don't know how else to put it. The females in the focus group, they tended to enjoy more Clark's graveyard scene with Lana where they're talking about her parents and they're riding horses and stuff. And, you know, there's drama going on with, you know, Clark wanting to join the football team, but his parents won't let him and stuff. And I guess my point is that women were were more drawn to, you know, the romance of the story or the conflict between characters, you know, uh, you know, Clark butting heads with Jonathan over this or that, you know, and character dynamics and stuff. Whereas the guys in the audience, they like the action set pieces, you know, Clark getting run over by Lex's Porsche and thrown off a bridge, you know, stuff like that. And so, or the media shower at the beginning of the episode, you know, things like that, you know, and these differences, ultimately, I think we do women and and really men, but I think we do women a disservice whenever we immediately assume that they're going to enjoy the same exact things 
about whatever media that we enjoy. Why would they? And so, uh, I mean, look, I, I understand that, you know, the temptation to, you know, to want to assume that we're all coming at this from the same point of view, but I don't think we are. And like I say, I don't think it's a bad thing, you know? I think it's actually very, very you know, normal, I guess. It's to be expected, you know? And it's, I don't know. Uh, whatever, I'm, I'm just, I'm rambling now. So, to get back into... Uh, and a Wilson's email, though, he writes. But I'd also put forth that there are, and what it says here, by exceptions. So I'm not completely sure what you're going for here, but Wilson writes, but I'd also put forth that there are by exceptions. I think the TTF Network's own Holt Mullinax or female podcaster Emily Middleton could need out on continuity to the equal of any of any fan with a penis, and I've seen guys that obsess over the drama and emotion of stories. I'm going to put this email back on pause and say, you know what, dude? For as true as all that may be, not the point. I'm dealing mostly in generalities here, you know? And uh, I don't really know a whole lot about uh, Hope. I mean, I've listened to her show a couple of times, but I'm really not sure, you know, what exactly, you know, drives her fandom. If you're saying that, you know, she comes at this from, you know, the same type of point of view that we do. That's fine. I've got no reason to question that. She seems cool. And uh, honestly, I hope, you know, hope if you're listening to this, I hope you don't take offense. But that's really about as much as I've ever really thought about it, you know. So uh, I mean that in a nice way, you know, but it's just I've only listened to her, to her show, uh, you know, just a couple of times. As to as to Emily, everybody loves Emily. And I guess my my reading of uh, of of her fandom and i would let her you know want to you know speak for herself on this but i always thought that she had a very broad interest in um, in comics she enjoys uh storytelling and she enjoys um i guess you know character dynamics and she enjoy i i don't know all right uh and emily if i'm wrong about this and assuming you even listen to my show which honestly i have no idea but assuming that you even listen to my show, if I've mischaracterized any of this, and hope same goes for you, I'm pretty sure you don't listen to my show. But hey, if you do, let me know. If I've misrep uh, misrepresented, you know, either of you, I mean, I do hope uh, you'll understand. Number one, no offense was intended, and number two, please do. You're welcome to correct me. Feel free. Um, but you know, John, what you need to know is that you know, even if you're right about those two. I don't think that really, I don't really think that changes my point all that much, if at all. You know, I mean, that's great. You know, there are the exceptions that I think tend to prove the rule. And, and again, if I, in case I haven't been clear about this, you know, I, I'm not saying that it's a good thing or a bad thing that women tend to get different things out of fandom than do men. I'm just saying that it's true. And so, anyway... John, I certainly hope you don't take my disagreement with at least certain aspects of this as a um, as any type of an attack or anything. God, my throat is so dry now. Just hold on. I want to get a drink of water here. Uh, John, I hope you don't take any of this as a, some type of a slam on you because certainly I would never do that. You know, I'm just... I hope I'm kind of fleshing out my point here. So, 
the end of the day, it's all you can do. So, anyway, uh, get back into his uh, email, though. He finishes, uh, finishes it off with, but trends? Yeah, I can see it. And you know what, dude? Ultimately, that's all I really wanted, you know, at least for someone to think about. You know, just to kind of, I don't know, just give it a little bit of thought, you know? End of the day, that's about the most I could ask for. So, and uh, let's see, how are we doing on... How are we doing on time here? Yeah. All right. Yeah. I better. I better make quick work of this. All right. So I think we got time though for one more email. This uh, this comes from uh, my old friend Mark Lax, dated September the twenty eighth, twenty fourteen. Subject line reads: Superman Earth One. And Mark writes: Hey Magnus, great show. I find the whole Earth One concept truly bizarre. The entire concept of setting it in the real world doesn't make sense because comics aren't meant to be real. What I'm saying is the real world version of Earth One seems to exist solely for its creators to send us their political beliefs. Hey, it's supposed to be a free country and all that, but if you want your if you want to get your agenda out there, put it on your blog, tweet about it, write an article for the Huffington Post. I don't care. Just leave it out of your comics. And I'm going to put this email on pause and say, you know, there are certainly elements of that that I that I agree with. I hate it, hate it, fucking hate it when comic book creators feel like they need to politic to me. You know, it just irritates. First off, it's just patronizing as hell. OK, it really is. It feels like I'm being talked down to, you know. It's like they're saying, you're too stupid to know who you should vote for or what causes you should support or what charities you need to donate to or what churches you should and should not be a member of. So I'm here to tell you what you need to do with your life. That's the way it feels. Now, whether or not that's the message they intend to communicate to me, it, it doesn't matter. That's the message I get. And so, you know what, Mark, I got to tell you, you know, it really is nice to read your email and think, my God, you know, here's somebody who feels the same way about it I do. You know, because generally speaking, what I find is that it's almost like there's a script to this stuff. A comic book will come out. The asshole writer of it is going to make some kind of a political statement, implicitly or explicitly. Somebody on Facebook is going to take exception to that. That somebody is going to post and uh, post a, uh, about it in some uh, comic book related uh, Facebook group. He's going to get immediately shouted down, and nothing was resolved as a result of it. And it just—I I, just—I've seen it too fucking many times now. Uh, and I could give you examples, but I mean, ultimately, it, w- it would profit me nothing because then I'd end up starting up my own little flame war through my through my podcast. And that's the last thing I want to do. But, you know, dude, I completely agree with that aspect of it. But one of the things about Earth-1 that seems worthwhile to me, and keep in mind, I mean, it, the whole thing really has been a mixed bag because, you know, at the time that I record this, we've only really seen Superman, Earth-1, Volume 1, uh, Superman, Earth-1, Volume 2, and Batman, Earth-1, Volume 1. So those are the three volumes that have come out. Superman Earth 1 Volume 1, I loved. Superman Earth 1 Volume 2, I enjoyed a lot with a few reservations. 
Batman Earth One Volume One was shit on a stick without the stick. And so I really do think like the whole thing has been kind of a mixed bag. And I think part of it is there is a, a kind of redundant element to all of this that the whole thing of it, the whole shtick of Earth One is that it's supposed to be a more grounded and realistic type of setting. It's just how is that different from any other DC comic book any other day of the week? You know? I mean, I don't get it. And so, uh, it, it just... It, because it feels like that's where the mainstream DC New 52 bullshit is already at already. So, or at least that's certainly where it was pointed to in at least a few cases. Batman, I'm looking pretty much right at you. And it feels sort of redundant and kind of reductive to put these these characters too much into the real world. Especially when it's done on such a hypocritical fucking basis. You know, everything about Superman Earth-1 is real world. Except for international geopolitics, that is. And then we have to use fictional countries because, hey, we don't want to offend anybody. Fucking hacks. So, anyway. Yes, all of this, is though, is just a very freaking long-winded way of saying, I agree with you, sir. You're right. So, anyway... Mark goes on to write, though, It's one thing to watch Clark Kent deal with his neighbor's heroin overdose, but leave Superman out of the day to... Uh, leave Superman out of the day-to-day -day politics of some third-world country. Dude, fucking exactly my point right there. Fucking A right. He's not part of our government. Hell, he probably could never hold office in any U.S. city, let alone make the decisions that even our president couldn't make. I know I'm probably just blowing in the wind here. And dude, Mark, no, you're not. All right, dude, your mouth to God's ear. Preach it, brother. I know I'm probably just blowing in the wind here, but when I read a comic, especially Superman, I want pure entertainment, purple tanks, evil scientists, the whole bit. Yeah, the story in itself is entertaining, but don't ruin it with your agenda. And this is coming from someone who considers himself a liberal. I'm just sick and tired of comic books, movies, TV shows, etc. Masking itself as entertainment just to get some political message across. I'm going to put this email back on pause and say, you know what, dude? Actually, I think that's where we are right now with uh, the current political discourse. I mean, it is not hard at all to find people who will say, I don't like politics. I don't like politics. It's all just so negative. Everything sucks. Blah, 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 blah. And without getting too specific... I think that there is a political movement at work in America, very well aware of that. And so rather than giving the microphone to politicians so that they can duke it out on TV and, and risk upsetting these, uh, these very sensitive, very fragile souls, they put the, the politics into entertainment media. They don't call it politics. And that's how you win people to your cause. They Look, Mark, the reason this is done is because it fucking works. It's no more complicated than that. Uh, you know, it, it, it would be nice to think that, you know, people can smell this stuff like a fart in a car and reject it accordingly, these little political agendas that, that somehow get advanced. And I'm sorry, I just don't think it's true. A lot of people... If you sit here and say, now here's your political message for the day, they fucking tune out. You give Superman, or any fictional character, 
that same idea, that same message, and have him express it, people are going to listen. That, I think, is why it happens. So, anyway. Get back into uh, into uh, Mark's email, though. He writes, Sorry for the rant, but let's stick to fun, entertaining comics. I'm also going to binge-watch Veronica Mars. Thanks for the suggestion. Signed, Mark Lax. And dude, Mark, thank you for writing in. Because I gotta tell you, you know, um, I'm always happy to evangelize new Veronica Mars fans. At this point, it... I mean, look, the show's over, the the movie's come and gone, and I really don't know what the future of that franchise is. But at the same time, it's nice to know that there's at least, hopefully, one more Veronica Mars fan out there. And speaking of which, I would very much like to get a follow-up email from you you know, if you ever uh, started watching Veronica Mars, like, how do you like it, you know? Uh, because there are elements of that show that kind of torqued me off. And, like, the principle of it, the I guess, the, to be precise, the uh, political angle, touches on points that you made in your email. And so I'm kind of curious, you know, how you respond to the show, keeping in mind that, at points, not always, but yeah, here and there, once in a while in, the, in that TV show, less so in the movie that I remember, but th- here and there throughout the TV show, occasionally little bits of political argument somehow found their way in. I'm interested to know what you think of all of that. So, uh, number one, thank you for writing. Number two, feel free to write again, because this was uh, a great email. Thank you very much. And again, thank you to all of uh, all, all of my loyal subjects who who sent in uh, feedback this time around. That is Fanboyimus Prime, John M. Wilson, and the aforementioned Mark Lax. Thanks to all of you. Really appreciate you taking the time to write in. I've actually got more feedback to work through here, but unfortunately, I'm, there's just no way. There's just no way that I've got that I've got time for all of that. So. Um, but again, thanks to all of you for taking the time to write. I really appreciate it. And I um, think that's pretty much it for me. Um, now, as to next week, uh, basically what I've got lined up here is uh, just a kind of a... This is for episode 99, you understand. Uh, sort of a look back at Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, because that's episode 99. The movie came out in 1999, so it felt like this was a good opportunity to steal one of... Tom Panarese's ideas and tie in the episode number with the subject matter. And so uh, hopefully uh, Tom won't mind me uh, stealing stealing his little method there. And I guess if he does, he can always drive to my house and whoop the shit out of me. So that's certainly one option that he's got. So, um, Tom, that's meant to be a joke. So, anyway, but uh, I think that's pretty much it for me this week. So, uh, Bye, everybody. I will see you next week. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus, Punches Reality, is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus, Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E. E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. 
There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2 True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the 2 True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.